Hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today on the podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. And actually, instead of talking about a clinical problem as such, we're going to be talking about clinical teaching in general practice. Um, and in particular, focusing on the experience that undergraduate students have when they're seeing practice or doing their um, extramural studies, otherwise known as EMS. And I think this is a, you know, going to be a podcast that's of interest both to the teachers and also to the students, so it should be really interesting. Um, and to do this, I'm joined by two people this time. Um, the first is Ruth Serlin, and the second is uh, Jane Tomlin. So thanks, ladies, for joining me today. Hi. Um, and before we get into the podcast itself, I wonder if you could both give our listeners um, a brief overview um, of who you are, your past career, and especially what your current role um, at the RVC is. I think it's important that obviously the listeners know who they're listening to so that they can put what you say into context. Um, and I guess, you know, like how much of your past career you want to divulge is entirely up to you. <laughs> um, shall we start with you then, Ruth? Hello. Um, yeah, I qualified from the RVC um, back in 1989. And I spent yes. most of my Even time... before me, I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I spent most of my time working Sorry. in um, charity practice or first opinion emergency care. Um, and the last few years I've been working at the vet college but teaching final year veterinary students out in practice at the Blue Cross Animal Hospital um, so I've been doing quite a lot of EMS type of um, activities with them um, more recently I'm back in the college teaching students communication skills and um, being part of the day one skills initiative that we've got here. Fantastic and actually we were talking um, before the podcast that we're going to schedule for another time a podcast on, on shelter medicine, and we'll come back and do that. Um, I'm just going to tell Mr. Borrow and the sound man that we need to schedule that one as well. <laughs> um, okay, and Jane, what about you? Um, I also qualified from the RVC in 92, so it's a bit of a RVC theme going on here. Uh, in my previous life, I worked as an orthopaedic surgeon in the Queen Mother Hospital, um, and now I am at the very grand title, but it doesn't really mean that much, of um, Assistant Director of EMS at the RVC. And I'm working under Jill Madison on all aspects of EMS. So it covers everything from helping a student to find a placement, uh, sorting out health and safety or insurance, or uh, trying to develop teaching that will make the students uh, enjoy or perform better on their EMS placements. Um, so pretty much any EMS issues that come our way. Trying to talk to practices as well about any EMS, EMS issues that they have. And I do do a tiny little bit of locum work at the weekends just to keep my hand in with the clinical aspect. Cool, excellent. Um, I'm not going to because we, we've already said, and I know that we've got a lot of stuff to talk about today, but it's interesting. I always find it interesting to hear about people's career progressions and about what makes people make the decisions that they make and how they change their careers and all that kind of stuff and whether people are just... Sometimes you get the impression people are rolling from one thing to the next, and other times people have a, a master plan. But we'll, we won't take the lid off that can of worms today, otherwise I think we'll be here just talking about that. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to ask you before we kind of get into the, the meat of the podcast, really, is that you guys actually um, suggested this topic of clinical teaching in practice to me. And I wondered if you could explain kind of why you feel it's an important topic for us to be discussing. Well, one of the things, um, the RCVS have mandated that the 26 weeks 
um, of students' time is spent out in practice in their final years of study. And um, we do a lot of work here to try and support the students going out into practice and making the best use of their um, experiences out there. And we thought, you know, it's a good thing to have some sort of dialogue and some sort of discussion with the EMS providers as well and offer them some interesting tips and supports in actually helping our students make the best of their Because I, um, I guess what we're saying is that students have to do this, right? It's compulsory. Yeah. And you can either just say, oh, well, have the sort of experience you're going to have and whatever, it doesn't matter. Or we can say, well, what can we do on both sides of the fence, right, to try and make that experience as rewarding, beneficial, productive, whatever other words we can come up with as possible. And I get, I get the impression from your kind of summaries of what you're currently doing that you guys are very heavily involved in, in lots of aspects of trying to make that whole EMS experience as good as possible. And I guess what we're saying with this podcast is we're trying to find another way, I suppose, of reaching out to both sides of that fence to see that people can have the best experience that, that they possibly can. Does that sound fair? Yeah, the students um, tell us and that they love EMS. Basically, they rate it really highly as a useful part of their learning. Um, it helps them to put their college learning into perspective and makes it real for them. But equally, they also tell us that their EMS experiences can be very variable. So they're variable between students, so different students will get different EMS experiences, mm. and also between practices. So I think we really wanted to try and see if there was anything that we could share from the student perspective that may be able to, you know, just make EMS a more valuable and more rewarding experience for, for everyone, everyone involved. And um, one of the things that um, I'm not actually clear about is for a practice to be an EMS provider, are there rules about that or can any practice be an EMS provider? Or The third year students have to see practice at multi-vet first opinion practices for the first 10 weeks okay. and all vets that provide EMS should be two years graduated um so you could have a situation where there would be some vets within a practice that are not allowed to be ms supervisors whatever you want to call it but others in the practice are so there's yeah. Sort of, yeah and you know as we'll go on to later ideally there'd be a one named vet or a mentor or something at okay. the practice that would be that ems person okay. excellent um the other thing I guess I wanted to say is that we are focusing on undergraduate veterinary surgeon students um but I guess at least some of what we're going to discuss in terms of principles of teaching and practice and how to make that whole experience as uh, rewarding as possible, um, I guess some of those principles are also going to apply to the experiences that the trainee nurses um, on their placements can have. Um, so I guess I wanted to start with the basics in a way by asking what, as far as you are concerned, is the purpose of students being required to actually do EMS during their training. We've obviously said that the RCVS mandates it, but what are they meant to get out of it, ideally? Well, the RCVS, again, um, discuss the aims of EMS, a, a lot about development of skills, so development of communication skills and professionalism, um, looking at business skills and ethical skills, ethical decision-making skills, as well as the sort of classic what everybody thinks about is getting more experience in medicine and surgery. Overarching all of that is more experience about um, developing approaches towards animal welfare. And, you know, we ubiquitously feel that actually the students gain so much 
from going to various situations and seeing how other professionals handle different cases, be they ethical cases, welfare cases, tied up with the medicine mm. and surgery involved. So it's, you know, it's a development. It's a development of the student into the professional that they're going to become. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think we, you know, really EMS is about sort of reinforcing the knowledge and skills taught at college, um, but it gives the students, you know, real life, real life experience in all aspects of veterinary work, which then helps them to develop as professionals and also helps them to become competent in their day one skills, which is something, again, that um, we try at the RVC to really let the students have a sort of reflect on what skills they need mm. to be competent on, on day one, on their first day of work. Excellent. And um, again, we're not going to talk, talk about it really because it's not uh, related to EMS, but that whole sort of PTP thing I think is another area and year one competencies rather mm. than day one skills. Yeah. And, and these are all things that have been introduced since we all graduated. Yeah. <laughs> I can rarely actually say that to my guests, but that's excellent. Um, but anyway, so um, again, that's for another time. We will, we will talk about that. Um, so I know that one of the major things that you wanted to bring up today was kind of relating to the, the state of mind that students may be in when they're embarking on a new um, EMS placement. I know that you mentioned, Ruth, before the podcast about um, how in some ways it can be stressful for students because they're kind of f- sort of flipping and flopping. I'm sure there's a better way of saying that, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, between structured rotations at vet school one minute and then they're on an EMS placement and then they're back doing structured rotations. Can you kind of elaborate about what you sort of meant about that? Oh, yeah. It's the final year students, um, really, the last year of their um, college course is they don't have a fixed place to be. So they will do some rotations here at the veterinary college. So they might do equine and then go to radiology and then... Um, do cardiology and then they're out into practice for two to four weeks at a time they might come back or they might then go on to another practice so they're in this constant state of flux um, the you know we, we've done a survey they they mostly stay in a place for two weeks at a time so throughout that whole year they're going from one place to another and I think it it can be really hard for them they they come into a practice where they're new to everybody a lot of the time. They haven't got their pals to talk with of an evening or to, to hang out with in, on their EMS practice. Um, and I think one of the big things is they often arrive on a Monday morning, and Monday morning is one of those real <laughs> crisis <laughs> points of there. any <laughs> practice. And then the new student pops up, wants to know where to hang their coat. You know, we'll talk about some of these things that we can help in a minute, but it's they arrive into a practice that's fully formed and functioning Mm. and they arrive having come from somewhere else completely, having had a weekend to turn themselves around Mm. and then start in a new place. And I think some of that can be quite stressful. It's character forming and um, a lot of the students cope very, very well with it. We're we're all from generations of character forming. Character forming is a buzzword, yeah. Um, (laughs) A lot of what we went through is character forming, right? But it is... It is hard for them, and I think they get slumps when they're not expecting it. They come in with lots of expectations and hoping they're going to do well and impress their EMS providers and their clinicians that they're working with. Um, And there's a lot of pressure on them, time-wise, 
location-wise and academically to, to Just perform. Just to look the logistics and, and the practicalities. Jane, do you have any sense of... Um, Ruth mentioned about you know students maybe going to a new place from a place they've never been before. Do we have any sense how many students tend to sort of use a core number of practices that they do all the AMS in, or is there a lot of sort of chopping and changing we, and um, around? We definitely, definitely encourage students to go back to a core practice, um, what we call their base practice, and they're allowed to spend a maximum of 10 weeks at a single practice. Okay. So we strongly encourage students to go for the full 10 weeks to a practice, okay. um, and the idea of the... Um, preparatory phase, the first sort of six weeks of EMS is to try and suss out which practice, you know, they like, likes them, that there's a good feeling that they can develop that relationship further, and then to try and go back in later in year three, in year four, and in year five. Uh, it is difficult because a lot of students tell us that, as Ruth was saying, the first week of a two-week placement is yeah, all yeah. about <laughs> finding your feet, and they'll say things like, you know, you don't even feel part of the team until the first Thursday. And then the vets are trying to work out what you can and can't do and what you do and don't know and how much they can trust you to let you do things. And then it's only in the second week um, that you really start yeah. to learn and do yeah. things. But we keep telling the, the next lot of students this, um, and yet there still seems to be this sort of two-week is kind of the... So roughly standard. kind of how long people will spend in each practice. So I guess we're saying if you then go back, hopefully that stuff carries Absolutely. forward to your next visit. Yeah, and the students do say that when you go back, it, it's the stuff that Ruth's been talking about, the who's who, you know, which vets like students to consult with them, which vets mm. don't, uh, where the tea room is, where the toilets are, all that kind of stuff they've sussed out. And they can start not from ground zero each time because otherwise new placements are literally... Ground zero. And uh, again, this is a bit of a tangent question, but I, I, I get the impression that a fair number of students end up being employed by the practices that they saw a lot of the AMS on. And again, I, I don't know if we have any idea about what the stats yeah, are. It would be really interesting to know. To know. Um, there are some practices now that are actually offering um, sort of 10-week placements to students and they will pick students so they will offer the 10 weeks and say we will mentor you for 10 weeks um let you know kind of let us know what you think you need and they choose the students that they want to take and obviously then they can build up that relationship but there has to be a positive aspect from the practices mm -hmm. in building up a much better relationship over a longer period seeing that young professional develop and yeah, potentially, why not? It could be a win-win situation if there were. And actually, again, we won't um, we won't get into examples, but there is. Uh, I'm getting the impression that there's a, a little bit more uh, momentum behind this idea of, um, you know, practices employing new grads, putting them through a year of some sort of post-graduation supervised training or something more formalised than was what was available before. And I guess in some ways, reiterating. I don't know, re-emphasizing a lot of what we hope that they would have got through their EMS anyway. But it just seems to me that there seems to be a bit more of a kind of... Because um, we've always said, I guess, that new graduates go out into practice and basically then they just get on with it, right? But I get the impression, and I, I'm not going to name drop a couple of... There's at least one corporate and uh, others that are doing that sort of thing where it's a kind of a year of sort of break you into life in practice type of thing. But um, now I know that um, from the comments that, that you kind of had made to me beforehand that... Um, and you can tell me if you don't agree, I guess. <laughs> but that probably a helpful way to discuss the student's EMS experience 
uh, is sort of in three parts. So we're going to talk about arrival and induction. We're going to talk about the actual bulk of the placement itself and then kind of wrap up and departure. Are you happy with breaking it down in that way? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so if we look at the first of these parts, then arrival and induction, I wondered if you can tell us about some of the things that, um, that you know that students can find hard when they first arrive at a placement. And leading on from that, then what can practice staff actually do to try and make, I guess, what can undoubtedly be a very stressful situation? And we've touched on, on a lot of this already. But even sometimes quite a fearful experience, I think, if you turn up to a practice and you are a stranger and it's all very unfamiliar, I can see how that can be quite scary for people. Um, what can practices do to make that whole experience kind of less stressful for students? Um, and I know that you know a couple of things that, I, that I'm hoping you're going to mention are about sort of fostering the kind of right atmosphere, having some sort of plan for the placement, things like that. So if you could um, share some of that advice with us, that would be great. Um, I think actually it isn't rocket science. I think actually think really simply. Um, so some really, really basic stuff like what to wear, where to park, what time the clinics start, what the expectation is is for staying late. Uh, are you expecting students to stay till 7.30 every night? Mm. If so, tell them. If you say, you know, you can have an, uh, one early night a week, then make it explicit. So sometimes it is about actually the things that, don't seem to be important that can be very important into allowing the students to just get feel for their expectations and it's the same with intramural rotations here as well the more explicit you can be about what's expected mm. then the more settled the students feel and then the easier they can start to you know do some learning instead of having their brain full of where am I supposed to be where am I supposed to stand what I'm going to interrupt your flow for a second because whilst you were talking I thought, I thought of two things one is, I suppose, the onus in this relationship is on both sides, right? Absolutely. If you make that stuff available, and not just with this initial arrival bit, but even throughout, if you make, if you make the effort to let students know that information, do things to try and make their experience more rewarding, then the students really need to, to engage too, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I guess I was thinking, which we're going we're gonna to touch on later as well, is this whole notion of, I suppose, right from the outset, as I listening to you talk, and the first question that came to my mind was, if you're in practice and you're going to even do any of these things, you kind of have to therefore be actually caring about having students in your <laughs> practice, right? Because otherwise you sort of say, well... Because you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, it ain't rocket science, but why should I bother, in a way? And I suppose we're going to touch on this later about how um, inconvenient it can be or not to do these things. But just for now, I guess, you know, why, why should I care? I'm, I'm a vet, I'm a nurse in practice, students are coming. Why should I care? Why should I listen to any of what you have to say? <laughs> I think, um, I think, I guess it's a little bit of um, we've all been through the system, albeit a long time ago. Somebody else cared enough, you know, to teach me the the ropes and do the apprenticeship model and you know be a mentor to me going mm. through my undergraduate course. Um, it, it, well, they didn't, and we didn't like that experience, so we want to make this experience better for these students, right, I guess. Yeah, it could be, it could be a bit of both. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I was lucky enough to have some very good, yeah. um, you know, experiences on EMS. Um, I think as a professional, there's, there is a sort of, you know, a feeling that you do want to um, put something back into the profession, and one way of doing it is to... 
help the students. You know, help the students. Um, I, think I, coming... I interrupted your flow, so I don't know, Ruth, if you've got anything to add well, about the kind of arrival back... and induction. Um, oh stuff. no, it was why do you want to do this? Okay. And we yep. discussed. That's probably the core question, anyway. <laughs> so. But um, you know, you're going to grow your own vets. So if you do find some really good vet students come through, then you do have um, when you need people to come and work for you. You've got a, a group of students that you know either you do or don't want to work with. And one of the other benefits, I think, if you're really um, listening to some of the students, at what they can tell you about what's happening in other practices and in um, the university as well, that there, you can get a whole different perspective on some of the cases. It might not it might reinforce totally what you're doing. It might make you um, challenge yourself to think about what you're doing. But it's an exchange of new ideas that I think is really quite interesting and quite exciting in practice to actually hear. You, n you never find out what the people over the road are doing or people in okay, different so that, that's places. That's really interesting. So, so as a practice, um, you stand to gain, if you want to look at it in those terms. Um, I suppose from a sense of... Uh, knowing that you are giving back to your profession and the veterinary community, but also then you're saying that there might be some more kind of tangible gains in terms of, you know, forcing you to assess your clinical practice, cluing you into what else is going on in the world and all that kind of stuff. And, and so for both of those reasons, I guess, and we're, gonna, we're going to touch, I think, at the end about the sort of the clinical practice side of, of that conversation. So let's, um, let's leave that uh, for the timing. Um, Let's move on then and talk about the experience that the student actually has during the placement itself. Um, I know that you mentioned, Ruth, about how the aspiration or the intention nowadays should be to try and make it a, a student-led experience. Um, so can you explain what you mean by this and how it might work in practice? And, you know, I guess my sense about education in general is that things have moved towards a kind of more student-led experience not just in extramural but intramural and, and education in general so what sort of things um, might work in practice to make that experience more student-led well I think um, just making sure that we know what student-led experience is I think you know we have historically and Joan and I are historically <laughs> an idea about Change education that is a lot about attending lectures and listening to experts speak and then watching experts do things and then you're supposed to learn how to do it by watching somebody do it um, and we're moving more and more towards a sort of adult idea about education where students themselves can um, identify their own needs and their own um, what they need to learn to progress and what they and how they can do that and we're moving more from the idea that teachers stand up and talk to actually teachers facilitating students with their learning and students need to be um, working out for themselves what it is they want to know and actually playing a big part in actually finding those things out or learning those skills. And in practice on EMS, I think that really translates down to, to thinking, how can I help these students learn the things that they want to learn? Sometimes it's not possible. Your, your practice doesn't allow for students to do a whole bitch bay or something like that. But there's a negotiation in there that, you know, the students might want to think, well, all I want to do is 
get out an ovary. And if I can do that, I know I can do the rest. And within that discussion that they can have with the people that are um, helping them with that experience, that's something that's probably quite easy to do. And um, Jane, do we have any um, sense from the students themselves about what they would like? I mean, is there a lot of support and... Do they like this whole idea of being sort of more proactive in deciding what it is they get taught? Or are they like, well... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes and no. Okay. And, and bearing in mind 204 students, 240 individual people with, you know, very individual um, ideas. Some students love the idea of trying to set learning objectives, talking to someone at the practice about them and developing their skills. Other students are very reticent and feel uncomfortable with the whole concept and just want to kind of... They know vets are busy in practice, they just kind of want to go and hang out and then see what happens and then have, you know, a, a more passive role. So it is very variable and equally it's very variable with vets. So some vets are like, gosh, wouldn't it be so much easier if the students did have that discussion mm. and then I'd know mm. exactly what it was that I could do to help, um, exactly what it was that I couldn't do. Like, I, you will not be spaying a bitch on your own while you're with us. But mm. yeah. <laughs> I can let you pull the ovary up, or when I spay the bitch, you can tell me exactly what I'm doing. What yeah. instrument do I need to pick up next? What do I need to do? Where do I need to make my decision? You can talk me through the bitch space so that you know that you know the steps sort of thing. So um, commu communication, I guess, is, is the I key think, to yeah. life in general. <laughs> <laughs> We've a tangent about No, life. I think it's, it is so important. It's, it's, it's actually about communicating and making things on both sides transparent. Um, imagine the vet thinking, I'm not going to let this student do any surgery because I don't want this student to do surgery. And the student for two whole weeks thinking, tomorrow's going to be the day mm. that I'm going to be able to do a cat mm. castrate or a cat spay. Mm. So they're spending their whole time on EMS thinking that it's going to happen. The vet thinks it really isn't. And actually, if you can have that discussion somewhere along the line and find a way of you know, coming to a sort of halfway house, then everybody's happy. It sounds great to me. I mean, I, um, I don't have a huge amount of experience of being an EMS provider, I guess, because a lot of my life was spent doing out-of-hours work and only recently, um, I think, out-of-hours practices have started to have some more students and stuff. But, but the, the kind of almost awkwardness about having somebody with you but you haven't communicated with them about what actually this whole experience is going to be about. I think that, uh, and, and having been the person that's been just sort of following someone around and not really knowing, having any of that conversation with me ever. Um, you know, I'm listening to here thinking it's been, it's been a few years. But yeah, that, that experience is, it could be made so much better by actually just talking about everyone's expectations and, and all of that kind of stuff. I think that's... Um, so we're back to communication again. <laughs> um, one of the things that um, I thought was really, was really interesting was this notion of um, students being able to help each other. And, you know, when we have um, a certain number of practices that I guess each vet school tends to, to have a certain number of practices that more get used more commonly, I suppose, for EMS. But, but it doesn't have to be. It's just a kind of general thing, really. I like this idea of, that you guys had mentioned before about... Um, you know, students actually helping each other in some way. And I know that, uh, Ruth, you had mentioned about this idea of, um, you know, practices having a visitor's book that students could actually use to leave information um, and tips for each other. Before I, before I let you comment on that, I, I guess I, um, 
Is it an indictment of, of, <laughs> of our status in life that we thought of a book when actually I suppose nowadays there's probably going to be a website, some kind of online tool or an app? Or I don't think it's going to be a book anymore that gets handwritten well, in. But. I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, I'm kind of... I, I think this um, whole idea about student-led and student-creating their own things is... Um, appeals to me in a kind of slacker kind of way <laughs> because I think if you're actually getting the students to create something so there's two elements of this and I think the visitors book is quite nice because you know if you've got um, somebody who is responsible for the students in your practice and writes a whole resource for them that's great but actually maybe you can get the students to do that themselves so it's physically there mm. in your practice. You know, they know where the good chip shop is. They know where um, to go on a Monday, what happens in the practice on a Tuesday. And it can be created by students when they're there and added to as they go along. And, you know, if we're trying to be um, more technical about it, maybe it can be a resource on a website with uploaded videos, pictures, maps, I don't know. But actually just so that the students can share experiences and create a resource for the practice anyway. I think it's a great idea. It's a bit like when you go to a, you know, a new town or a hotel yeah, or yeah. a B&B yeah, or a something. It's like all this useful information that... Um, I, I think it's... Do, do you know if anyone's actually doing that? I guess somebody must be in some sort of informal way. No, I'm, I'm not aware of it. And I'm thinking... You know, it's something that maybe we should encourage our students mm. to do, obviously with um, neutral and positive <laughs> experiences in there. Yeah. Um, but the other thing about it is, you know, students will learn a lot about what is important to them if they're trying to create something. So if they're trying to, um, moving on into a sort of more educational field, just trying to write quizzes or write... Um, case reports for other students. So within the practice, if they see something interesting, um, they can create a resource for the next students that come along. And that creation of the resource, I think there's some learning in there. I think it's great. I'm I'm starting to um, have all these ideas about, you know, some kind of rating system and student feedback nationally (laughs) and all this kind of stuff. But let's just forget all that. Um, So the next thing I guess I wanted to touch on was the teachers in practice. Um, Again, we haven't got a huge amount of time, and I know that there's a lot of things that we're, we're trying to cover today, but I wondered, Jane, if you could try and summarise, or between you, if you could try and summarise sort of themes or buzzwords that might be considered kind of current recommendations for workplace teaching. That sounds really formal, doesn't it? <laughs> well, we talk about active learning, really, and it goes back to the students doing things and then making sense of what they're okay. doing. Um, and vets in practice, nurses in practice receptionists of practice can facilitate that and encourage the students to sort of read around what they're seeing without actually asking question after question after question which can be quite frustrating and if you're just felt that you're um trying to fill a vessel full of knowledge is not helpful for anybody so encouraging the students to read around giving them time to go and read about things and write things and come back and discuss them because that discussion is much um it's a much more useful time spent than actually okay. giving knowledge. So encourage active, active learning yeah. and doing some self. But, but I guess we sort of go back to our conversation that we had before that in order for that to be a useful experience, you as the vet need to be open to have a discussion yes. mm. and to potentially find the students coming back with information that is 
contrary to what you might say or think, etc. Um, so I, I guess that's, that's part of their challenge, right? If you're not just saying, well, I'm just going to tell you what I do, end of conversation, but actually yeah. you go away and research this and come back to me, then you have to be open-minded enough to have a, a discussion, right? Well, those are the times um, when I've been in practice and I have learned some stuff or actually had my own opinions challenged. So when your opinions are challenged, you can then unpick why you're doing the things that you're doing um, and explain that to the students. And it's a much richer learning experience for you to be having that interesting thought about, well, why actually am I doing these things? And why am I doing it this way? And uh, Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think half part of, or a very simple way, is actually to think about articulating the decision-making process and the things you're doing. So you don't, you don't have to do a lot of teaching. You don't have to take a lot more time out of your very busy day. Mm. But if you can somehow articulate the decisions that you have made, because the students just see you do stuff, black box, yeah, sure. <laughs> decision gets made, something happens, and they, but they, they don't understand the black box bit. So actually, if you can just articulate, I'm thinking this, I'm thinking that, I think that that can be quite, for, for some people, we don't want to generalise here, but I think for some vets, that can actually be quite a nice, fun experience, really, because maybe in their daily, normal, normally, they're not really, they don't really necessarily have to do that. And I think, you know, we're all, um, I guess, to some degree or other, I don't know what the right word is now, but, um, you know, like having clinical conversations, I think is probably something that most people that work in clinical medicine are going to enjoy to some degree or another, right? So I think that sounds like a, like a really... I'm going to move on from, from that bit because I wanted to touch on um, the idea of providing feedback. And I guess we're saying with everything that we've talked about so far that... Um, well, are we saying, Jane, um, whether we want people in practice to be giving the students feedback... And if we are, then how about some guidance about the timing and the nature of that feedback yeah, delivery? Absolutely, yes. Feedback is, you know, the, the whole thing that we want people to do. Students aren't going to learn without feedback. They can't, they can't self-assess. They, can't, they don't know where they are in the whole scheme of mm. things. So feedback is essential. One of the problems that we have with the formal feedback is that the EMS uh, feedback goes on the attendance form which gets filled in at the end of the week, which then comes back to the college and goes through the system to come back to the tutor. But some students, particularly those on the year three summer placement, could do eight to ten weeks of back-to-back -back EMS before they can see any, any feedback, of well. the feedback. Yeah. So they've done eight to ten weeks of placements, they come back to the college, and then they will have the discussions with their tutor about you know, the, feed that, the feedback that they've received from those practices. So they have no opportunity to reflect on that feedback and no opportunity to make any changes before the next EMS placement. So if they were a bit shy in week one and didn't mm. realise, then week two, week three, you week four, it, you know, you, hopefully you see a little bit of a change, but if they, if they are needing help very early on, it, it's almost... The feedback comes too late. So timely feedback would be really important. So day-to-day -day discussions, feedback on a daily basis, maybe some summary feedback at the end of the week. It doesn't have to be long. Yeah. Um, and perhaps thinking specifically about this student is probably going to go to another EMS placement next week. What can, what can, they, what can I help them with that will make the next placement or make them 
uh, you know, able to interact better, learn more, whatever on their next placement would be really useful. Okay, cool. So we're basically saying at the beginning, try and have some sort of communication about what the objectives, what the expectations are and so on. Throughout the placement, be quite dynamic and provide feedback, I guess as, as appropriate really, mm. so not obsessively, but you know, whether it be daily or every other day or whatever it is appropriate for your circumstance. And then at the end of the placement, probably have some sort of debrief and review of how things have gone and, I guess, suggestions of how the students could improve their, their EMS experience on, on subsequent... Um, does that sound like a, a fair oversight of the feedback situation? <laughs> I think it is. I think one of the things um, that we try very hard to... Um, discuss is that feedback should be a conversation that you have. I think sometimes we can be very, um, as a profession, <laughs> very directive about things at times. And it's, it's really interesting sometimes to hear what the students thought they did well and what was important to them that sometimes you as a clinician and you, at most vets don't spend the whole time with the students so they'll have different experiences to feed back on. Um, but it's really interesting to see what, the, what was important to the students in the week that they spent. And I think that having a discursive nature to that feedback is really, really helpful because you can, you can find out what the students were worried about for next time and give them some tips and give them some help in fixing that. But if all your feedback is unidirectional, you tell the students what you think, you might not be feeding back on the stuff that they actually need some help with. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, and I guess that's sort of uh, we, we have touched on it already, but it, you know we, I want to I want to mention it again because I do want to keep addressing this question of we're sitting here and we're talking about how we would love things to be, and a lot of our emphasis is on making the students' experience as good as it can be. But I do want to revisit this idea about what if I'm a vet in practice or a vet nurse or a practice manager, and I turn around and say, well, look, actually all these things sound like a lot of effort, but they're going to take me a lot of time. And frankly, you know, what, 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 what are you going to say to people in practice to sort of, I guess, allay their, allay their concerns about what's being asked of them, but also to reinforce the benefits for them as well, really? This is your chance to kind of... <laughs> I think <laughs> I genuinely believe that even a few minutes... Um, just doing some of the things we talked about, having those discussions with students, um, you know, setting things up in the practice so that it, we, you know, the students can start quicker to, to get to know people and the rest of it. I think it, it will make a massive difference, actually, to the vet's enjoyment of having students on a placement. Um, if the student is constantly in a state of I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, mm -hmm. then, then they can't be as interactive with you and therefore the experience is going to be more negative for you. And so it almost starts to get a little bit, you know, spiral downhill. If the students are more comfortable, then actually there has to be a much more positive relationship. You know, there's lots of things that students can help with. Um, and actually a lot of vets say it's just nice to have someone to talk to in the car yeah, because it's so yeah. long, you know, so lo long way between trips and stuff like that, you know, between visits. And, and so I think it can be a very positive with a very minimal amount of, um, of effort. It can actually lead to a very positive experience. I think, um, <laughs> you know, my, my Monday morning issue, it, that's a hard one. I think that is a hard one to get over. And if you've got a resource that the students can spend that first hour reading over a cup of tea 
and they then know where to make the cup of tea <laughs> so they can make you one later. But if you've got a little resource that they can use just to immerse themselves a little bit until you get all your messages and inpatients, whatever, dealt with on a Monday, or if you've got somebody specifically that can talk to them there. But it is an ongoing conversation and relationship with the students, with different members of the practice. And I think if, if all of that has been going on through the week, which a lot of it is discussing things and verbalising things and actually negotiating. So, you, you know, you've got happy people, happy students. <laughs> um, then, you know, when you come to your final feedback at the end of the week, that, that shouldn't take up that much time. And it's also interesting to hear their point of view back. And I think that sort of thing can be wrapped up in, the, in one consult time. Hmm. Really, it, you know, it shouldn't have to be that long if it's just a nice ongoing thing. And I think, you know, I'm trying to say that students making their own resources so that there's stuff there for the next student or for them to do some learning on their own in practice. They don't need to be with you the whole time. They can go away, research a case, look at it, come back to you and discuss it with you. Um, and and I, guess, um, yeah. I guess ultimately bottom line is that this sounds really dramatic, but it's kind of just about humanity, isn't it, really, and courtesy to other human beings. And if someone's in your practice spending time with you, the notion that they might be having a really unpleasant experience or really unrewarding experience, to me, it just seems like, well, I would like to try and do something about that situation. So I guess we would kind of think that if not, if it's, you know, forget all the fancy arguments, if you like, on a basic humanity level, it seems like, well, people are there to, to gain experience and yeah. you should try and do what you can to... To reach out to them, I suppose. I'm a bit like that. <laughs> and I think our students are pretty amazing. The more time you spend with them and the more energy that you do put into that sort of relationship, you find out that they're really quite fascinating, interesting people too. <laughs> Excellent. Um, there were just a, a couple of things that I wanted to kind of finish on. The first was um, not very controversial. And this is just about if, if there are people listening to this podcast who are saying, well, actually, you know what, I'm already quite interested in, in this or... I am interested in finding out more. Um, are there any resources that you can direct people to where they can sort of find out about how they can improve their teaching experience in their practices? There's quite a lot online with um, medical practice. So, um, you know, there are some notes. London Deanery have got sort of some website, um, website information on helping students learn. There's not a lot in the veterinary environment that's easy to access. I think more recently um, the BVA have put out some top tips in practice. Um, at the vet college here we're starting to engage more to bring um, some EMS providers in-house and um, discuss a lot of these things okay. with them in, in greater depth. But it is, is that, something... Um, two questions. Is that something that you know the other vet schools are doing or not doing or... Don't know. Not sure. We did one EMS CPD, well, EMS provider CPD day last year, and we've got another one coming up this year in September. And is that, again, this is, uh, you know, we have to be honest about this, but is this, uh, is this something they will be paying for? Is this something uh, they get as a kind No, of... it's free at the moment. Okay. <laughs> I say at the moment. At the moment. Um, yeah. But it is free, and the idea is basically to try and generate discussion. Interesting. So it's a you know. That sounds like a really interesting day. I might moonlight if I can. Um, and then just to say, you mentioned about the articles in, in practice from the BVA, and I guess we were talking before about being clear that unfortunately 
those aren't um, they're very good articles but they're not free open access and so people that are members of of the BVA uh, will not be able to access those articles it sounds to me from listening to you like there is um, probably need for more veterinary specific resources and I guess my impression is that actually a lot of that human medicine stuff will be translatable but I'm sure there'll be some nuances that that you can't just lift from that environment um and I guess we hope that in the years to come there will be more yeah I think um as well we do run courses through live at the RVC that are postgraduate certificates in education so if anybody's interested in actually doing um a certificate specifically in veterinary education that is something that they can engage with it's not a top tips it's much more you know much more in depth it's um but i think it's very very rewarding our lecturers um take this course and some other educational providers have done that fantastic to look into um and then the last question we have we're, we're sort of running out of time soon but the last um the last question i wanted to touch on was this idea that um and I guess the reason I wanted to touch on it was that in my time, obviously, in clinics working with students, one of the things that, that we sometimes get fed back to us is where we've obviously either demonstrated over a case or actually just in our teaching about what we suggest one does about X problem or the approach to managing X, X particular disease or whatever it might be. And the students have sometimes come back and said, well, when we were out in practice, we didn't see that, but we saw something different. Um, and, you know, sometimes you get the sense from them that, that they may be a bit uncomfortable about what they saw. And I guess the question I wanted to touch on was, do you have any sort of suggestions about what is the best way for a student to, um, I guess, process what they're seeing and do something proactive and just engage with what's going on there and how it differs to what we have taught and just kind of make sense of that whole situation so that it doesn't leave uncertainty or, I guess, sort of, you know, a bad taste or whatever it might be, but... Yeah, just some comments about the differences in what people do and how they should think about that. I think it would be very useful. I, I think it's a really um, common thing and it's quite a, a difficult concept for some of the students who, you know, as you say, they go out having learnt one way and they see another way done. And I think there's a number of things that, that the students can do and that we can do to help them progress through that. And I think... We, tot- we all accept that different people do th- different things in different ways. There will be other, um, other um, ways of doing a particular piece of surgery or thinking about some sort of medical problem. Um, and I think a lot of um, what we do is informed by where we are. So helping the students realise that a charity practice is going to behave differently from a referral practice, that different clients have different expectation of the vets and different animals are going to be able to cope with medical intervention or surgical intervention differently and just allowing the students or helping the students to realise all of those things can coexist and there are different ways of doing it is it's a big ask and it's quite an interesting thing to have to um, help the students develop, but part of the CMS is about students' development into a professional um, into a professional role, and coping with this sort of dissonance is part of that. We do um, we run lunch and learn sessions for the students after their EMS placements, with the idea that 
they can reflect and discuss mm. different aspects of general practice, which we just kind of pick a topic and persuade one of the um, lecturers to uh, facilitate. Um, and that then hopefully gives them a better or at least a space to do that reflection of, you know, what was different and why was it different. Um, I think, I guess it kind of comes back to the verbalising the thought process, as mm. Ruth was saying. Yeah. Um, things are going to be different. There's a number of reasons, or a myriad of reasons for doing things differently. If, it, if, it, if the vet can verbalise what they're doing, then mm. the student will be clearer why those various decisions were made, and then hopefully there's a lot less of, uh, but we were told at college <laughs> it should be done this way and not this way sort of thing. And I think the bottom line is, is EMS is all about real-life situations um, and learning about dealing with, you know, every single permeation and connotation of the different... Um, you know, situations that everyone finds himself in, really. I guess, um, I guess for me, it's sort of, um, it's a, it's something that I, you know, I, I suppose I tackle, we all tackle clinically, clinical teachers, I think should tackle on a daily basis in a way, because I think there's a lot of, or there should be a lot of, um, emphasis on people that are teaching the students within their colleges to not, you know, disengage with what's going on outside of their practices and actually say, well, this is a way of doing this. This might be what we consider to be best practice, but this is this is another take on this where reality impacts on decision making. And then also, you know, here are a bunch of different opinions, and part of this is going to take us down a line about evidence based practice <laughs> and what we do know and don't really know, and all of those kinds of things. Um, and actually, I think that in, in in your responses, you know, there are so many things I think captured in that whole experience, and I think some of them are about. I guess, how you interact with each other as people and taking us back to communication. Some of them are actually about what we just don't know in clinical practice, and that throws in a whole other, another can of worms. Um, so, I mean, I, I, think it's, I think there's a, there's a lot of things going on in that sort of students potentially seeing things that, that they haven't been taught and, and wondering about what's going on. Um, but I do, from my point of view, I do think it's really important that we all don't just duck that conversation and actually say, well... It's not a criticism. It's just, it's a, it's an open and honest conversation. And, and certainly, I um, you know when I teach about my emergency stuff and critical care stuff, it is always with this. You know, you have to be cognizant of the environment that people are practicing that in. And I think I was saying to you before that for me, um, I guess the way I see it is that there is kind of rational practice insofar as we understand it in 2014. I always have to add that in nowadays. And there's practice that I guess a lot of us would consider irrational. But within rational practice, I think, you know, there are, at the moment, there are different opinions and stuff like that. And I think it's just putting all of that into context. And I suppose some of it just stems from saying, actually, you know what, we don't know, or we might come across, like, we, we know stuff, and people might tell you, like, they know stuff, but actually, they're probably being a bit disingenuous about what we actually know. And so then they open their minds to saying, well, actually, there's stuff that we don't know, and that can explain some of what they're seeing. So I think it's a... It's a really complicated uh, and interesting, um, an interesting thing. But I think we, you know, we, we need to be careful about making sure that we um, transmit the right vibe to students, really, mm. about how they should engage with their EMS experience, right? Yeah, I think students still have this very um, idea of sort of fixed knowledge. If I learn everything from A to Z, then, then, then I'll know what I need to know. And actually, <laughs> yeah, it's really just trying to get that across life 
and for the rest of your clinical working life isn't going to be like that. It's interesting because uh, we're going to stop now, but um, there's a couple of quotes that, uh, well, well, they're not really quotes, but a couple of things. So one is about this whole thing that it's not, I'm not making this up, it's around, but, you know, this whole idea that, um, you know, 50% of uh, what we know now or what we think we know now is not true. But the problem is we don't know which 50%, so that's part of the issue. And the other thing, which I thought was quite a good mantra, really, is about this idea of saying, well, do the best you can with what you know now, and then when you know other things and you know other things, then do better based on those things you know. But I guess if you're not open-minded enough about any of this, then it's going to be a real struggle to do good clinical practice. And from a student's point of view, if they're not having these conversations with people that say, you know what, we need to be honest about what we do know and don't know. And that may be part of what they're seeing that's making them uncomfortable is because it just doesn't... No one's actually said to them, well, that's okay too, right? And I think that's sort of an interesting part of, um, of, of what we do. Um, before, we, before we finish, was there anything else that you guys wanted to say? I mean, we're going to stop now because I don't want to overrun on time and there are so many things we could talk about. <laughs> Were there any last sort of comments that you wanted to make or are you happy with what we've discussed? I, I just wanted to say thank you to oh. <laughs> all the practices that provide EMS placements for our students. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if anyone is listening to this and does provide EMS um, placements for our students, then, you know, please keep doing it. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you have any top tips that you want to share or you want to discuss any EMS-related issues, then please feel free to contact, well, myself at the RVC or... Shailen or whoever, and we can, you know, get some dialogue going. Um, no, definitely. I think it's, um, I think it's, uh, it's very, very important. And I know that, um, like, I don't have a demographic of our audience. That's quite a big <laughs> audience. But I don't know exactly who they are, but I've certainly had some emails from people in practice, vets in practice. So there's certainly some of them that are listening to this. And there's definitely a bunch of students as well. So hopefully um, we can sort of circulate this as, as far and wide as, as possible. Ruth, was there anything else that you wanted to wrap up with or...? No, I think we've, we've mentioned most of it. I mean, my, my sort of key things are the communication and open dialogue. I think when, when that changed for me and I wasn't so um, closed about what I was doing and I opened it up and I said, well, because I'm working in a charity practice, I see this dog today, I'm doing it this way. It, it gives a context for the students to understand why you might be doing something different from another another practitioner in a practice that's just down the road. Mm. And I think the students are in a... They're in a place between the university and between general practice and between one practice and another at any one time. Yeah. And there's so much going on for them that sometimes it, it can get overwhelming, sometimes it can get a little bit too complicated. And, you know, practices often look after them very, very well, but sometimes can get frustrated with students that are and I think, um, quiet. And I think we haven't really explored it, but we're sort of talking about general practice like it's a homogeneous yeah, yeah. situation. <laughs> no. And again, there's such diversity, yeah. right, that it's um, things, that, things are bound to vary. Right, we're, we're going to stop now. Um, so, um, look, I, I personally have really enjoyed this, and, and I'm sure that we're going to come back and talk about different things related to clinical teaching in the future. Um, to the listeners, as always, if you do want to get in touch, please do and provide um, both your feedback, but also, as Jane mentioned, if you want to uh, engage with conversations about um, EMS teaching and so on, then I will be happy to um, to forward your comments on to, on to Jane and Ruth. Um, so you can email me as usual, uh, which is directly at sjasani 
at rvc.ac.uk. Um, on the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page, there's a photo album that actually contains links to the podcast. Um, or you can use Twitter and tweet at Royal Vet College with the hashtag SAClinPod. And until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.